0: Good morning, today's very powerful and piercing scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 continuing through chapter 6 verse 2 and it may be found on page 661 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. So it's Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 continuing through chapter 6 verse 2. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. What benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked, a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. And then it realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jill. Good morning. As we do almost every week, when uh, we bring the word of God to you, there is inside the bulletin, a an insert that I would just take a moment to point out to you because it's been a while since I did. For those of you who are a little new, you might not understand what this is all about. It's a little insert that will hopefully help you to uh, review the sermon during your week ahead. You might do it in your own personal private Bible study time. You might do it in a small group that you're in. Perhaps your life group would want to use this. But it's a sermon discussion guide, and uh, it's in there this week as well. And on the back of it is a place where you can take notes. So I would encourage you to do that. If you're not a note taker, you might find that it would uh, help you keep your attention a little bit better during my messages and um, use it during the week as well. We're in the Ecclesiastes today. Now, you might wonder why, because we are in the midst of a series of studies on the book of Hebrews. Last week, Seth preached our New Year's sermon, and it was not from Hebrews, and this sermon today is not from Hebrews either. We're going to get back to Hebrews next week, uh, and we will plunge in and continue our series on Jesus the Crux, which is the series uh, title from Hebrews. So why are we taking a break from Hebrews today? Well, it's because I want to talk to you about money. And I want to set it in the larger framework of something called momentum. Now, what is momentum? Well, you know what the word momentum probably means. If you are an NBA fan, you know that momentum is what the Orlando Magic have right now. That they have had since they made those big trades back in the month of December. If you're uh, a politician, you know what momentum is. It's when your voters and your citizens begin to finally get behind you and start supporting you and vote for you. If you're into physics, you know what momentum is, right? Anybody know what the formula for momentum is? P equals what, Chris? MV, right? Uh, uh, Mass times velocity. I don't understand what that means. Some of you probably do. But that's what momentum is to the physician, to the uh, physicist rather. But the word means power. It means speed of movement. It means force. And that's why we're giving the word momentum to what we're launching today. This is the official launch date of momentum. What is it? Momentum is a journey to what we hope God will do here at UPC, which is create a culture of stewardship in our church. A culture of stewardship to begin to change some of our habits as individuals and as families and, yes, even as a congregation. Momentum consists of several different things. It consists of sermons. Every now and then I will preach a sermon about How to Manage Your Money, taken straight from the Bible. We will also have a series of Sunday school classes this year on money management. And they will begin with our children. Our kids are going to have Sunday school lessons built around the theme of money management. How about that for a good idea? Don't you wish you'd had that when you were a kid? I certainly do. And it will also consist of Financial Peace University. Financial Peace University is something you might have heard of. It's something started by Dave Ramsey. It's a 13-week course that we've been teaching here at UPC for several years. And it has to do with learning how to budget, learning how to uh, understand investments, and just take care of your money a lot better. Be a better steward of the money that God's given you. And so I'm going to have more to say about FPU. That's what it is for short, a little while later this morning. But uh, you might want to understand why we're doing it. Why, why this church-wide emphasis on money management? Well, it's because one of our main ministry goals as a church is to disciple one another to spiritual maturity. That's one of our main reasons for being to disciple or to train one another unto spiritual maturity. And you can't be spiritually mature if you're not managing your money properly. You can't. If your money is way out of whack and you're way off balance with your finances, you're not fully a disciple. You're not into the path that Jesus wants you to follow. So we think it's our duty, we as leaders, to equip you with the tools and the know-how to take care of your money properly. So that's why we're doing momentum. And that's why we're talking about money today. It's not because the church needs money, even though we do. (laughs) It's not to make you feel bad about your money situation. This is not going to be a guilty uh, producing sermon. I hope it's going to be practical. I hope it'll be useful and inspiring to you. No, we're doing it because it's part of our mission. The bottom line is that I want you to know that money management is a spiritual issue. Money management's a spiritual issue. Did you know that there are over 800 scriptures in the Bible that deal with money? And Jesus talked about money more than any other single subject. Isn't that a surprise? More than heaven, more than hell, more than salvation. Jesus talked about money a lot. So let me take the next 25 to 30 minutes or so and give you three principles about money management from the passage that Jill read to you a little while ago, from the book of Ecclesiastes, and then I want to spend the last part of it on application. Three biblical principles on money, taken from the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to look at Proverbs and a couple of other places as well. Beginning with principle number one, and this is foundational. The money that you have and the things that you own were given to you by God. This is something that I know you've heard a billion times, but it's full of implications. The money that you have, the things that you own, all of your possessions, your home, etc. are all given to you by God. In chapter 5 of the text this morning, verse 19, it says, when God, underline the next word, gives. Did you see that? When God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work. This is a gift from God. And again, in chapter 6, verse 2, it says, God gives a man wealth, possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. You go to a restaurant and the waiter or the waitress brings you the bill and there is the cost of the meal. And underneath there is a line known as a gratuity, right? I hate it when, and it's usually when you're with a big group of people, I hate it when it says gratuity has been added to your bill. I hate that because it's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. Because it ceases to be a gratuity when it's been added to your bill. If it's been added to your bill, what is it? It's a debt. The word gratuity comes from the root word we get the word grace from. Gratuity means gift. Gratuity means something above and beyond your debt. It's something that you don't deserve. It's not part of the regular bill. It's something you're giving out of the goodness of your heart. Now, I know that in our country, in our culture, it's sort of expected that you give a gratuity. But the word gratuity really means I'm giving this to you just because I'm giving this to you. I appreciate you. I love you. And everything you own, everything you have, is a gratuity from God. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. He's given it to you out of the goodness of his heart and out of his love and out of his grace. Everything you have is a gratuity. And God expects you to what? Manage it well. To take care of it. So that when he comes back, like the parable of the talents says, you will have something to show for what you've done with his good gifts. You are a manager. Another word for that is steward, right? It's not your money to do with as you please. It's God's money. God gives you money and he says, take care of it. Be a manager of it. Do you believe that? Do you believe really in your heart of hearts that everything you own has been given to you from God? I love what John Calvin said. Look at this quotation. It's rather long, but let me read it. I think it's really, really good. John Calvin, one of our Presbyterian forebears, said, we are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own insofar as we can. Let us, therefore, forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely. We are gods. Let us, therefore, live for him and die for him. We are gods. Let us let his wisdom and will, therefore, rule all our actions. We are gods. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him. As our only lawful goal. What's Calvin saying? He's saying you don't belong to you. Your money, your time, your body, your house, your abilities, your talents. They're not your own. They are God's. Therefore, be the very best steward that you can be. That is bedrock there. That's principle number one. Let's go on to principle number two that we learned from this book today. Properly managed, money is a good and an enjoyable thing. Don't want anybody here to leave thinking that Christians believe that money is bad, that riches are inherently evil. That is not what the Bible teaches. Money is not necessarily a bad thing. Properly managed, it's good and it's enjoyable. Chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 Teach this pretty clearly. It says, It is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to, notice that word, enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. So money is not a bad thing, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Think of money like a pile of bricks, right? Here's a pile of bricks sitting here. The bricks are not good or bad. In fact, they don't care. You can take those same bricks and throw them through an expensive window and hurt somebody with it. Or you can take that same pile of bricks and build something good with it. A hospital, a school, a business, a church. See, the bricks don't care. They are neither good nor bad. You can use them destructively or constructively. And the same is true with money. Money can ruin your life. It can. If you love it more than you love God. But if you manage your money according to God's principles, it can accomplish a lot of good. It can send kids to college, for example. It can translate Bibles into other languages. It can send missionaries into places where nobody has ever heard of Jesus. It can feed the poor and help the oppressed. It can rebuild hurricane-ravaged cities and create new technologies that, that help people and put Sunday school materials into the hands of little children and much much more money can do that and if you manage it wisely ephesians 5:19 says you can enjoy it 1st timothy 6:17 says that god richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment including our money but and let's go on now to principle number 3 but when mismanaged money creates nothing but stress And bondage. And many of you know this only too well. Mismanaged, poorly managed, that is. Money creates nothing but stress and bondage. Look with me now at chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. You're going to see in these verses examples of money that has been poorly managed. Chapter chapter 5, verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether he eats little or much but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep now notice that he in context he's not saying that the riches create tension but this man this rich man obviously is mismanaging his riches and it permits him no sleep he can't get it off his mind he's tossing and turning at night he's wondering when in, when's that bill going to come you know when am i going to overdraw my bank account Uh, What's going to happen? Is it going to be stolen? What's the economy going to do? In other words, his mind is totally immersed in finances and in how he's going to do things, you know, and it permits him no sleep. And verse 13 goes on to say, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner or wealth lost through some misfortune." So do you notice in verses 12 through 14 that money that has not been well stewarded creates nothing but problems and strife and anxiety. Now, I can think of five ways, and I'm sure there are more, but I can think of five ways that money can be mismanaged. So let me give these five to you, and then we'll talk about them. The first way that money can be mismanaged is when you're not living with a budget. So if we're going to phrase it this way, how not to manage your money, don't live with a budget. Don't have a budget. Just fly by the seat of your pants financially. What's a budget? It's simply a plan. A plan where you put together and you think about how much you have, how much you can spend, how much you should save, and how much you can give away before you do any of those things. It's a plan, a blueprint by which you manage your finances. And did you know that the scriptures talk about budgeting? The scriptures teach that it's foolish to try to live without a budget. For example, think with me about Proverbs 27, 23. It's right here. Be sure that you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches don't endure forever. Now, you and I probably don't have flocks and herds. So we could easily update the language there and say something like, be sure that you know the condition of your bank account. Give careful attention to your bills. How are you going to do that? You're going to be sure to keep a plan and a budget. Have it laid out. Have it on paper so that you can do what that says. You know the condition of what you have and you can pay attention to the income and the outgo." Luke chapter 14, verse 28 says, suppose one of you, this is Jesus speaking, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Jesus is just saying how foolish it would be to try to build something like a tower without a plan, without a budget. So Jesus even knew the value of budgeting. See, it creates stress when you don't know the condition of your bank account. It creates bondage when you spend money that you're not sure you have. And only too late you find out that you're overdrawn. And then what are you going to do about it? Now you're dealing with anxiety and stress and bondage. You need to put together a budget. Otherwise you won't be able to manage your money wisely. The second way that we could agree people could mismanage their money is by spending it wastefully. So how not to manage your money? Spend money wastefully. Just waste it. Spend it frivolously. Spend it without thinking about the consequences. Look at Proverbs 21, verse 20. It says, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food but and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. See, that's talking about somebody that just goes out and spends everything that he or she has. I read someplace that the average US household spends a dollar and twenty two cents for every dollar that they earn. Now you can't keep doing that before too long. The foundation just begins to give way. According to the National Bankruptcy Research Center, there were one and a half million bankruptcy filings in twenty ten. And that was nine percent more than in two thousand nine. And many of those bankruptcy filings happen because people spent their money foolishly without regard to the consequences. See, we've got it wrong. We've got it wrong. Money is not a means to consume more and more of the world's goods. And that's what I would say the majority of people believe, right? That money is a means by which I can simply consume more and more and more stuff. No, according to the Bible, that's not what money is. Money instead is a resource to be managed for the glory of God and the good of others. A resource to be managed for the good of the kingdom. So that's the second way. Spend it wastefully. Third way that money can be mismanaged is not saving for the future. And I'm going to have a children's sermon at the second hour about this. I'm going to talk to the kids about saving. Not saving for the future would be a way to mismanage God's money. Look with me in the text now. Chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. It says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Notice that. Nothing left to give to my heirs because I've not saved One of the great causes of pressure in our lives is when we get hit by an unexpected emergency, by something that we didn't plan for. And of of course that's going to happen. There's no way to know that your computer is going to crash tomorrow. There's no way to plan on medical emergencies or to take care of a pipe that breaks when you're on vacation. And I know that's happened to a few of you. What are you going to do when that happens, when those unexpected emergencies happen? The Wall Street Journal one time reported that 7 out of 10 Americans, 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Their paycheck runs out just about when their next paycheck arrives. A recent Gallup poll found that only 32% of Americans could cover a $5,000 emergency without having to borrow money. So about a third of people in America have something Set aside so that if a $5,000 emergency were to happen, they could say, here it is. You know, I was ready. I, I was like the ant. I, I, I stored up my grain in summer and I gathered my food in harvest. That's what saving is. When you don't save for the future, you are not, now listen, you are not providing for your household. And one of the most sobering verses in the Bible, is 1 Timothy 5.8. And it says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Oh, wow. And when you don't save, when you don't set aside something for these unpredictable emergencies, you're not providing for your family. The fourth way. That one might mismanage money is not only these that we've seen, but being in too much debt. Being in too much debt is a way to mismanage your money. Now look, I'm not prepared to argue that all and any form of debt is outside of God's will. I mean, think about it. To borrow money to buy a home is a very different matter from borrowing money to go buy a new car. Uh, when you do that, that car begins to lose value immediately. Under normal situations, your home gains in value. <laughs> Under normal circumstances. We believe that that will one day be the truth again. But look, I'm talking about pulling out your credit card and just buying that thing on a whim when you don't have the money to cover it. And, and that bill's going to arrive and you won't be able to pay it. And so you sink deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in consumer debt, which adds more pain and more heartache to your life because you're just paying more and more stuff for more and more things. Being in too much debt is a really good way to mismanage your money. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. This verse caught my eye, and it's one reason why I selected this passage for us to study today. Chapter 6, verse 2 says that when God gives a man wealth... Uh, God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. It occurred to me that that's exactly what happens when we take debt into our lives. We allow someone else to enjoy our money. That's really God's money, right? God gives it to us to enjoy, and we're just giving it away to people to enjoy, and we're under bondage to it. Proverbs 22, verse 7, this is pretty familiar. It says that the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. This verse teaches that taking on debt creates a master-slave relationship. And it steals away your freedom. You give away freedom when you take on debt. You're no longer free when you owe someone money. You're not free to respond, for example, when opportunities come along to give to people in need. You're not free to buy something that you really need because you're in debt to something that you probably didn't really need. And you're not free emotionally either because you're worried that you're not going to make ends meet. You're worried that you're going to get hit with late fees and things of that nature. So you give away freedom and you enter into slavery. When you buy into the notion of easy money, free money, easy credit. When you're in debt, our text says that somebody else is enjoying your money and you you need to get upset about that. You need to get angry about that because that's not the way God intended it. He wants you to enjoy the money that he gives you. The fifth and last way, and so very important, that you might mismanage your money, is when you base your identity, your value, your significance, and your security in what you own and how much you have. You say, oh, I'd never do that. Really? (laughs) Really? I've done that. Basing your identity on what you wear on how new your clothes are, on what labels they are, basing your significance on what kind of car and how good it looks that you drive, basing your, your value on what kind of house you own and what neighborhood you live in and who you associate with, what type of job you have and so on like that. If you find your identity and your security in those things, you will be disappointed. Look with me, chapter 5, verse 10. This was the leading verse in this passage. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And this too is meaningless. Let's take the epitome of good money. Winning the lottery. Right? That's the epitome of riches. We, we read in the newspaper those people that have won these million, million dollar Powerball lotteries. And we think, wow. That'd be the end of my problems. But if you've read about many of the stories of these people who win the lottery, you would find out that that's often not true. Millions of people play the lottery every day, and so many of them have said and, and, and go on the record as saying, I wish I'd never won. I wish I'd never won. Take Jack Whitaker, for example. Jack Whitaker On Christmas morning in 2002, he woke up to find out that he had just won the Powerball. He won $315 million. Wow. That was the largest individual payoff in U.S. lottery history. And you know what happened? His world immediately fell apart. His daughter, his granddaughter Brandy, died from a drug overdose that was funded by the allowance that came out of that lottery winning. His wife left him. He was quickly bombarded with all these lawsuits. Much of his money was stolen and his own greed got the better of him. He turned to alcohol and he watched what he called the Powerball Curse destroy his life. I read about another man who was kidnapped and murdered by his sister-in-law after winning $20 million. A lottery winner in New Jersey spent over $5.5 million in two years and now lives in a trailer. Another man opened a business with his $1 million winnings and declared bankruptcy five years later. A winner of $16.2 million in Pennsylvania now lives on food stamps and lives in a trailer. We think, how could that be? I would never do that. No, you probably wouldn't do that. I think you'd do a little better than these people. But the reality is this, and these examples prove it. Money does not have the capacity to satisfy the real needs of the human heart. It wasn't created to. It never will. Like I said before, money can be a good thing. But it's temporal, It's meant to fill temporal needs. And and human beings were created with more than temporal needs. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. This means that you were created with an aching need for God. You were created with a God-shaped vacuum in your heart. Blaise Pascal talked about that. He said that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. Friends, if you look to money and possessions and status and success and beach houses and cars and vacations and clothes and on and on and on and on goes for proof that you're valuable and significant and acceptable, you'll never have enough of those things. You'll never be satisfied. You need more than money. You need more than stuff. You need something that will never leave you or forsake you. You need something that will forgive you. Something that will hear you when you pray. Something that will change you from the inside out. Something that will pick you up when you've fallen down. Something that will give you hope in a future. Something that will take away your fear of death. And that's not a something. It's a someone. Only God can love you with an everlasting love. And that's what that God-shaped vacuum is crying out for. Jesus died on the cross to bring you into relationship with God. And if you'll turn from your sins and follow after Jesus, you will come to the end of the search for significance and the search for identity because you'll find out that your identity is not based on what you have or what you do, but it's upon who you are as a dearly loved child of God. Let me tell you, these five things that we've talked about, <clears throat> my wife and I are pretty good at all of them. My wife and I, in our 30-some-odd years of marriage, have played around with one or more of those things at various times in our married life. And we found they don't work. <laughs> we found that they don't help you manage your money. In fact, it hasn't been until recently that we've finally gotten our financial house in order. I've always tithed, but I have not always avoided these pitfalls. And it wasn't until my wife took Financial Peace University last year and came home and started telling me, Mike, we, can, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this and that, that we finally started doing these things. I'm sorry, I, I confess I give credit where credit's due, and it's to my wife for taking FPU. Speaking of which, take a few moments and let's watch this little drama up here.
2: I just can't get these numbers to add up.
1: Like, we're never going to get out of this hole.
2: Credit card debt, does it ever end? Maybe I can help We sure could use it. We sure could. We've tried debt consolidation companies, too. We've even taken out loans to make the payments. You're not alone. You know, millions of Americans deal with uh, debt that is way out of control. That's why I came up with a new, unique system to help you manage your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Can't Afford. Let me see that. Hmm. If you don't have the money, don't buy anything. Sounds interesting.
0: Sounds confusing.
2: I don't know, honey. There's a whole lot that makes sense in here. There's a whole section in here that talks about buying expensive things with money that you save.
1: Give me that. Just where do you get this
2: saved money? I tell you where and how in Chapter 3. What if I really, really want something and I don't have the money? You don't buy it. (laughs) But what if you don't have any money to buy something? Should I buy it anyway? No. Now I'm really confused. It can be a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money and you want to buy something? Can you buy something? Yes. Now, take the money away. Same story? No. You don't buy something unless you have the money. I think I got it.
0: I buy something I want, and then I hope I can pay for it.
2: No. (laughs) You make sure you have the money... Then you buy it.
0: Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy
2: it before you have the money? No. But why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. Mom! Dad! Yes? I really, really want this really, really expensive piece of electronics and plastic. So can I get it? I really, really want it. Really, really. Do you have the money? No. No. Well... Sure, honey, we'll buy it for you. Yeah, and we can put it on the credit card. I really, really think you need the information contained in this book. The advice is priceless, and the book is free. Ooh, that sounds really good. Yeah, and we can put it on the credit card. <laughs> for the says, what do you think, folks? reality is that a lot of us buy into this general mentality. And our line between necessity and luxury becomes blurred because of the society that we live in. Um, one of the basic foundation foundational messages about Financial Peace University is, um, um, is uh, being in the world, but not of the world. Um, And, and uh, God warns us in Proverbs that the borrower is slave to the lender. And I don't know about you, but I certainly felt enslaved at some time because of the debt I have. You know, what, what, what could I have done with all this money if I didn't have all these debts to pay? Now, UPC, we're here, uh, we're launching um, Momentum. And a main, uh, a main aspect of Momentum is Financial Peace University. And that starts next week on, uh, on Sunday morning. And we'd like you to pray about that. Pray, see if you could become part of Financial Peace University um, You just think what could the people of God do For the kingdom of God If we were debt free Now I do want uh, you guys to know about something Somebody signed up, the very first person to sign up And to pay for um, for Financial Peace University Gets this wonderful Canteen mm. That person was David Gordon Is David Gordon here? No relation David Gordon, no? Now, we also had somebody who, who, who brought somebody in to sign up. And that person was Colleen Blatman. Is she here? Neither one. Well, things didn't quite go. But the first person to sign up in today's service will get this amazing T-shirt. Yes, we are not above bribing you guys to sign up for this. So, the first person to sign up and pay today will get this amazing T-shirt. Thank you very much for your time, Mike. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Financial Peace University, as he said, starts next week. We're going to be offering it four different nights uh, beginning next week, which means that I think everybody here could find one time that would be convenient for you. You might even be able to do it in your life group. Uh, so talk with your life group about that. See me, see Chris Nace, who is our Momentum chairman. Talk to Tim McGuire or one of our other elders, and we'll be able to answer your questions about FPU. But I know for a fact personally that it's enormously beneficial. So if you're guilty of any one or more of these five things we've talked about this morning, you definitely need FPU. If you think that you have got it knocked and you know how to manage money, we need you to help us with FPU. You can be a mentor, a discussion leader. You can help teach one of our Sunday school classes. So let's see momentum and how it can change the culture of UPC by changing you one family at a time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us without answers to common practical questions like how to manage money. Thank you, Father, that you give us all that we have and all that we own. And we ask that you will help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to manage your stuff well. Thank you, Jesus, that you died to bring us that thing which is truly valuable, which is a relationship with God. May we value that so very highly, Lord that we would do nothing to lessen its impact in our life, including mismanaging the money you give us. Lord, bless FPU, we pray. Let it be a ministry that really equips our families and our individuals to handle your stuff more wisely. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.